Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds Community Radio from Chapel FM and we're in Studio One. So I'm here today with a, a remarkable man by the sound of his biography and we're going to be talking to him about his life in music but also he has a volume of poetry out. Jamie Bloom. Hello Jamie. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, I'm yeah. pleased to meet you. And it's lovely to meet you too and thanks ever so much for coming in. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing, uh, well, hearing about the poetry and also how it relates to your life. Um, but yeah, you've, you've, you've done all sorts of extraordinary things, uh, managing venues like the Rainbow. I'm particularly interested in the Rainbow Theatre in London and JoJo's, Kensington Market, Café de Paris. And you're also a Tai Chi teacher, mm. which is, uh, you know, again, another... So another aspect of your life you can tell us how that it all relates to itself niche <laughs> ish but Jamie first of all yeah tell us about um, the poetry but which is called Change and Rage and it's just coming out in the next week or two so, so tell us about how this book came to be okay so the book is called Change and Rage um, it's something I started very young in life I was about 17, 18 and I've been writing the poems throughout that time up to recently, uh, obviously not everything I've written is in the book, but I'd say the main ones are. And I suppose it came about because uh, about seven years ago I was diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, prior to that, I didn't actually know I had that. But, you know, I was kind of criticised when I was at school for uh, not focusing for etc. etc. So I left school quite young in a way due to that. And I think the poetry was a way of taking that, uh, those thoughts that are in my head, which were slightly muddled and getting them down on paper, which was quite a cathartic experience. Mm. And I've, I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. And, and so poetry for you has always been a way of, um, yeah, as a sort of pinning down something, that perhaps th thoughts and feelings that sometimes are maybe a bit fleeting. I'd say, it's, I'd say that's true and been a type of therapy. Um, I've, I've read quite a lot of William Burroughs' novels and one of the things he mentions a lot is the first thought is the best thought. And often when I'm writing something, I don't plan it or think that much about the structure. It just seems to flow. And I, per I personally think that's a quite a good way. Well, let's hear uh, a, a poem from Change and Rage, which is out soon from Pegasus. Yeah, yeah. So this is called Rainbow Days. So this was the poem which was the kind of beginning of the rainbow, which I took over in 1977, Rainbow Days. From Genesis to Punk and Human League, from all the world they came and went, deadheads and more. It was eerie as I walked in, floor covered in posters, Thousands of empty red velvet seats, backdrop, Tommy, bedraggled and torn. 
there was a chilling air, as if all the energy had died. I felt all the crowds who had come over the years and had been elated by what they had experienced, by what they had seen, but now old ticket stubs strewn about, ghostly and strange, but compelling and yet so telling. Lovely stuff, Jamie. That's a poem by Jamie Bloom that he's, uh, he's just read. It's from his forthcoming collection of poetry um, called Change and Rage. Let's just, before we come on to your kind of career in, in music and music venues, mm. um, yeah, tell us about the role that, that reading, you say you're a big reader as well, you've always, the reading and writing have played in your life, particularly if, if you say that you, your, your school life wasn't perhaps what it might have been. Yeah. Okay, so when I left school, I felt slightly left behind. A lot of my friends went to university, etc. I didn't, obviously. I started working quite young. So I was determined to catch up. So I read and read and read hundreds of books you know, right across the range from from the classics to the modern day writers of that period. And uh, obviously, the poetry, I'd been influenced by various people. Um, Shall I mention those people? Yeah. yeah, Okay, so I suppose, if I want to name a few people, it would be Oscar Wilde, William Burroughs, Edward Lear, Lewis Carroll, Charles Bukowski, um, Shakespeare, Thomas Macaulay, and oddly enough, Bob Dylan. And um, I think that's how it started. And, and and I kept it up, which I think is... So the reading, in a way, the reading, and those are, that's, a, that's a great uh, cast list of, of, uh, of influences, mm. uh, sort of inspires you and tri- prompted you to write yourself. Mm. Yeah. And that's, 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 that's a really great thing about reading, isn't it? I mean, I think that that's why people say, oh, I don't want to read because I might get influenced by those people. But I, I think everyone's influenced by somebody. Yeah. And you can't kind of drop that influence completely. And maybe, I suppose everybody thinks they've written something totally original, but there's going to be the odd line which has come possibly from somewhere else or somebody else or an expression you've heard. Yeah. I don't know. But, yeah. you, know, you know, over the years I've heard, thousands of songs i suppose and heard hundreds and hundreds of live bands and even that's an influence yeah how so tell us how you got into what became your the main part of your life which is managing venues i guess no i started actually on a market stall selling fashion and uh so i was in the fashion business originally we opened one shop, I remember, in Roman Road in Bethnal Green, and I thought that well, that was it. I'd arrived, um, but we ended up with forty-five shops in London, and um, then I suppose uh, people kept became uh, kept approaching us to rent space from us in the shops. So I thought that was quite a good idea. So we ended up doing this kind of indoor market operation. I suppose the iconic one was Kensington Market. Um, which had about 200 different tenants in there Mm. from all areas, one being Freddie Mercury, selling the obvious (laughs) (laughs) T-shirts. And uh, not that I knew he was going to be the lead singer of Queen at the time, I didn't. Um, And then uh, that that group was uh, sold eventually. And uh, maybe due to the ADHD, I was offered the Rainbow by a friend of mine, 
And I, she said, do you want to do the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park? And I said, well, not really. I don't have any experience in that business. And I think uh, one of the main strap lines for my era or that era was we didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, I think we did it all on gut feeling, on instinct, uh, some form of inspiration. Uh, but it wasn't based on the knowledge that people have today. Um, so anyway, I agreed and we took over the Rainbow and after being... Uh, a year in negotiations with Rank. Uh, funny enough, who were also competing with us, but that's beside the point. Um, and so we took it over in a very bad state. Um, and it took a long time. It was a listed building, which you probably know. Uh, so we had to kind of comply with historic buildings and oil paints, etc. Uh, it was 125,000 square feet, so it was a big operation. What time? What, what year are we talking now? Uh, we, I took it over in 76, opened wow. in 77. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things they asked us to do was paint the ceiling black, which was black. And hence. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when they saw it, they said, nice job you did on the ceiling. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, it's quite, you know, as you probably know, the whole interior was a Moroccan village, which went round the Prasini March. It also had, I think, the largest stage in England. So mm. the band had to be pretty full to to come over on stage. So what had been the heyday of the rainbow? Well, I think my period was the heyday. <laughs> yeah. No, but I really before, do. No, but before then, was, did it have a... a it started it? in uh, 1930 yeah. as a picture palace yeah. because it was luxurious and people's homes in that area were not luxurious. Mm. And, you know, they had carpet on the floor and velvet seats and it was uh, a place to go and mm. be comfortable. Yeah. And it, it moved on from there, I think, in the 40s, to become like the big American jazz bands like Duke Ellington, Count Basie, that period. Then uh, in the 60s, it was still the Finsbury Park Astoria. Then it was taken over by an American guy called John Morris, who owned the Fillmore East in New York as well. And he changed the name from Finsbury Park Astoria to the Rainbow uh, and made it quite iconic. Um, then... After him, Christmas Records had it for a while. They didn't last too long. And it was empty for a couple of years before I took it over, hence the poem, why it was so bleak in there, yeah. and etc. And uh, as we worked on it, and the opening night was with Genesis. Um, so 1976, was Peter Gabriel with 77. 77, no, he'd left by then, hadn't he? That's the whole point. Um, so the press said, uh, Peter Gabriel's gone, how can they make the drummer the lead singer? <laughs> and, uh, well, the rest is history. Yeah. He did do well. Uh, they did five nights with us, standing ovations, etc., etc. So it was pretty successful. And it was kind of exciting to see that place, which was semi-derelict in some ways, kind of come alive with mm. thousands of people in it. And it was really mm. exciting. But I guess that was also the, the sort of cusp of that, sort of the seven, early 70s prog rock and punk now punk came a bit later so we started off doing the kind of uh, american heavy rock bands genesis and from, sorry from genesis grateful dead uh bands like spirit well i can't name all the bands yeah. but you know we did fleetwood mac we did uh, we did virtually everything then punk came along which i actually liked and found it very refreshing Definitely wasn't overproduced, uh, very raw. 
And I got friendly with a few of the acts, uh, like Elvis Costello, and uh, who I really liked. And uh, what I liked about him was he came to most of the shows there and was dancing like in the back row, mm. which was which was nice. So we did uh, him, we did the Ramones, uh, did the Sex Pistols, but only rehearsals. Um, Buzzcocks, Patti Smith. XTC? Yes, XTC. One of our favourite yeah. bands. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that whole period. Yeah. And, and, but I suppose the main, the most exciting act I'd say we had there from that era was The Clash. Yeah. And uh, Stranglers and Jam. Except The Clash audience virtually destroyed the venue so every time we did the, the clash we were losing approximately 600 seats a night like the whole front five rows were demolished remember these were the traditional velour seats metal sides no metal no wood no velvet nothing and i was standing in the foyer actually with my brother and two people came out with toilet seats around their neck <laughs> and i thought that's a funny thing to bring to a, a, to a concert hmm. and then the penny dropped so we rushed into the toilets there was nothing in the toilets no sinks no toilets no seats <laughs> demolished like a bomb had gone off extraordinary well let's 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 leave the rainbow for now but we'll come back to it hmm. um it'd be great to hear um another poem if you will sure this is called aging not that I'm old, but... No, of course okay. not. No. We all get old, all decay, cannot think straight, lose our way. We trip and fall, stiffen up, our looks recede as time impedes. It slips away, picks up speed, lose our keys, can't find our cars, find ourselves in some old bar. Who am I now? What do I think? Lose myself, can't find the sink, but no one there, or cares, it slips away. Another day, another year, another fear. Ooh, yes. Ooh, <laughs> um, I mean, have you thought about, uh, I mean, you've got so many uh, extraordinary memories and stories of that time, which is, I mean, it's a part of history that, that uh, you know, is documented by so. I mean, Elvis Costello writes very well in his um, autobiography about all that. But have you thought about writing that yourself, uh, writing about that? I was going to come to that at the end. Um, well, you can save it for the end if you like. <laughs> uh, no, I can mention it now. I'm working on a book about the rainbow at the moment, but it's going to be a photo-led book, coffee table book, uh, with one souvenir book and then maybe a slightly more affordable one as well mm. uh, with some, I don't know, maybe 60, 70 pictures. I'm having a slight bit of trouble getting original pictures without going to the big photo agencies. Um, Unfortunately, we did not keep film that we took ourselves from that period, remembering it's nearly 50 years ago. And frankly, anybody who had taken pictures there, they all have to be very much updated because the quality would not be that great, as it was all done on film. There was no digital. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the photograph on the front of London Calling of the of the clash you know it was at the rainbow taken at the rainbow i think it was I th i've got a feeling it was well as the clash yeah. virtually destroyed the rainbow i think yeah. it was and it's also in most of the press cuttings of them mm. that the damage that their fans not that they did it but the fans and they were an exciting act to watch i don't know if you ever saw them did you i didn't i saw i saw a number i saw the jam i saw mm. xtc and mm. various other bands of mm. buzzcocks the clash were really yeah i've seen very film exciting to watch. yeah i'm, I'm mm. sad to have missed mm. them mm. um 
Jamie, we're going to hear a, a, a track that you've chosen. So um, let's hear about the first one. Come as you are, Nirvana. Okay, do you want to tell us about why you've chosen that? I like Nirvana. I think they were kind of raunchy. I like Kurt Cobain. I like the way... I, I like, And I played the guitar most of my life. And I think a lot of what he did was quite simple. But I think sometimes the simple is not so easy, is it? By, by Nirvana, who Jamie Bloom, our guest today on Love the Words, uh, admires. And did you ever meet him? No. Actually, never played our venue, never met him. I've yeah. met, you know, quite a lot of famous people in my life, but yeah. not just from music, from kind of all walks of life. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So if you, you've, you, you, you said that, I mean, as, as you might perhaps, that your period at the Rainbow... Mm-hmm. Uh, in London at that time and the be- beginning in 1976 was a kind of heyday of, of, of the venue. Change. A heyday of change. Heyday of change, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, how long did it last and, and what, what few were the highlights? You've mentioned a few of the things, the acts that you I suppose on. I enjoyed the change moving from kind of traditional rock bands into punk, which was raw and earthy, which I quite like. And quite rebellious, I suppose. But I think there's a bit of that in me as well. And uh, to reggae, like we did Bob Marley there, and, and then it softened into the new romantic thing. So we had we did the whole gamut of music in a short space of time. So from 77 when we opened till 82. But music changed rapidly and drastically. I just mentioned one story. I had a, a meeting with Marvin Gaye, who for me was iconic, and it was a very odd meeting because for some reason or other they wanted me to manage him. And I met him in a block of flats off the Edgware Road called the Water Garden, which, which was on its way down a bit. And the flat was a bit shabby, and I didn't expect to meet him in that sort of environment. But every, every time we met, he was in his dressing gown. And so I only ever met him in, in his dressing gown. And he said, well, you know, give me $3 million, man, and you can take me over and don't worry, I'll fill up the rainbow for two months and you'll get all your money back, which I was doubtful. And I said, that's all very well, Marvin, but how do I know you can actually sing anymore? You haven't done a concert for a long time. And he sang what's going on in his dressing gown in the lounge. (laughs) And that was, and I could have stayed there for two hours and just listened to him. Right. And there you go, a story. And what happened with that then? I didn't go forward with it. Mm. 
I don't know, he was doing some odd things. He was like eating chewing gum when I was with him, rolling it up in a ball and sticking it behind his ear, which I thought was not... I haven't seen anyone else do that. So, and the $3 million was a lot of money, particularly just to manage him. So I thought about it for... I said, let me think about it and I'll come back to you. Two weeks later, he died. He was shot. So my decision probably was right. Yeah. Not to go with it. Yeah, absolutely. If I can ask you, Jamie, what, what, what qualities as a human being, if you like, and also as a, as a, as a businessman, did you need to run that venue? To run the rainbow? Yeah. I'd say tremendous durability. The hours are very long. You used to walk about five miles a night walking around the venue. Mm. Quite a lot. So I was tired. And I think you need um, that total durability to kind of stand up to that sort of pressure mm. organize a lot of people deal with disruptions like we often used to get um, ira phone calls that's a bomb in the venue we had to clear out the whole venue uh, police came in with dogs checked it out and we had to let everybody so you had to have good organizational skills mm. Mm. and i think that's obviously i must have had that or mm. it wouldn't have worked but there was always incidents at the Rainbow every night. So you'd have needed some diplomatic skills too. Yes, you did need diplomatic skills. I'd say from everybody, from the artists to, to the public. Like uh, the bands used to come in with massive riders, particularly the American bands like Hershey Bars, which you didn't even have in England in those days. You used to give them Mars Bars. And, uh, you know, fresh orange juice, fresh leaves, et cetera, et cetera. So we had to placate them. Um, and I think what was difficult was, I gave you an example of the Clash destroying the seats. What I didn't tell you, the night after the Clash concert, we had Dolly Parton on. So we, it's a totally different audience who wanted to sit down, be comfortable. So we had to ring up most of the venues in London, see if they had spare seats. And we were actually screwing down the seats as she was coming on the stage. Yeah. So yeah. things like that, things unexpected, yeah. uh, forgeries sometimes. So I'll tell you a diplomatic thing. We once had a forgery on a ticket. 47 people turned up for one seat. And you've got to say to those people, well, your ticket's a forgery. No, you can't sit in the seat, but we'll let you stand up because they paid for the ticket. But you made that happen, presumably. They yes. all got in. Yes, they all got in. But yeah, you couldn't yeah. refuse them. They no. did pay for it. No, yeah. absolutely. So, um, yeah, let's t- tell us tell us what happened after that. You say you were there just till 1982? Or? Yeah. Yeah, that's an amazing period of music. Okay, after 82, it closed. Right. And it became a Brazilian evangelical church, which it is today. And they really? bought the Freehold, big organisation, etc. The thing that branched off of the rainbow i did a very big outdoor concert in blackbush airport in 1978 with bob dylan eric clapton joan armor trading and greg lake and attracted quarter of a million people in one day i think it still holds the record for the most people in one day and i met bob dylan which for me was actually couldn't open my mouth when i met him (laughs) (laughs) i just didn't know what to say but, uh, so how did that progress, that conversation? didn't progress. <laughs> it's nice to meet you, man. Thanks very much. Went on the stage. Oh, brilliant. Bang. This is 78. I'm not sure what it was. 78. August yeah. 78. It's called The Picnic. Right, okay. Absolutely amazing. So, and, and Joan, I'm a trader. Did you meet Joan? No. Sorry, but I didn't meet her. 
Clapton I met a few times. Yeah. But, you know, they were very much the support act to him, yeah. including Clapton. I mean, the people came to see Bob Dylan, you know, who hadn't played the UK, I think, since the Isle of Wight, which was 12 years before that. Was he in his Christian phase? I can't remember. No, it was just over that. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Really slow train coming. Slow train coming. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, he yeah. was beyond that. Right. So, what did you after eighty two? Then, what, what was your next move? Um, after eighty two, I basically went into the club business, thinking that it was very similar to the live music business, which it was not. Um, uh, so, the first club I was offered was Madame Jojo's in Brewer Street. Um, what was that? <laughs> That was a, I suppose you would have to say a drag show where all of the staff were transvestites. And so we used to get a real mix of people coming. Actually, a lot of women came to that thing, um, to, to, you know, to the shows, etc. And uh, it was exciting. Um, the actual show I took over wasn't my show. It was the club was owned by Paul Raymond at the time and I rented that club from him. And the show was a bit pantomime dame. So after a year, I thought, let's change the show. And I did something more progressive and more of the time. And all the audience said is, can you bring the old show back? Where's Ruby, etc." And uh, so it always remained more or less that same sort of show, very pantomime. And did you stay there for a while? We had that for 10 years. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't there every night, but, you know, after that, uh, I was offered Café de Paris. And the weird thing about Café de Paris is it had a similar history to the Rainbow, built in the same time, 2930, mm. uh, with the same problems, historic buildings and everything had to be right. And uh, they checked everything. And once again, the right oil paints. And I remember we had to change the air conditioning ducting by a few inches, which is quite difficult in an old building particularly when you've got them breathing down your neck and you have to do everything perfectly. But things happened in Café de Paris and I met people that I probably would never have met in my life. I actually met Charlton Heston in Café de Paris and he was coming out, coming some interview, oddly enough, with Jonathan Ross there. I don't know, he was always like God for me because he always played Moses or <laughs> God's voice or whatever and I was just kind of dumbstruck. It's the last person I expected to see on the staircase. Yeah. Also, we did a live show with Prince one night. came very late. We didn't book it. It just was booked in there. And quite incredible to watch him in a, a venue that held 800 people. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's all kind of celebrities came from all areas. And mm. interesting period. Again, 10 years. 10 years. Right. That's a good stretch, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Right about... All in all, about 20 years in the club business, which is long enough. <laughs> so, Jamie, we're going to ask you uh, to read another poem again because uh, this is fascinating to hear about all this. Um, but, of course, you're here because, just to remind listeners if they've just uh, joined us, uh, because you've written a volume of poetry. It's collected over your life, isn't it? So yes. it's not recent poetry necessarily. Is mm, from... Some is, some isn't. Yeah. yeah. It would be great to hear another uh, poem. Okay, it's called Shady People. Sat at my table in the club. He joined me. Used to getting his own way. His play. Miss bets. Veiled threats. A bad guy. Dealer. Selling dreams. 
Without him, clubs would not survive. Clientele would disappear. Do I want to share? No, not good, not right, not bright. He stared at me, unblinking. It would happen anyway, if I agreed or not. Not a good night life, would not keep a wife. Sham, affront. He got up with disdain. It was a good try, as he looked me in the eye, but did not say goodbye. Yes, I mean, you presumably you would have met yeah. all kinds of people, to put it mildly, <laughs> in your business. How, how, how was that? Because, you know, everybody has always asked me, did we pay protection? No, because you don't need to pay protect, protection because the gangs who are mainly selling drugs fight over the territory that they want. You don't come into the picture. But unfortunately, if you ban them from coming in or dealing in your place or stop them, the club will die. No one will come there. They'll go to somewhere else where they can get what they want. Um, so, yes, they were around, but it doesn't mean they were my friends. I'd met most of the bad boys in London over the years, one way or another. But how much contact you wanted with them or not was up to you. And I thought better to keep my distance. But but they never really caused me trouble and it didn't threaten me. Mm. So there you are. But there's that presence. Of course, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Let's hear another piece of music. Okay. I would like um, to play Kathy's song by Simon and Garfunkel. It's a lovely song. Mm. Why? I like the words. I liked it. I liked them when I was very young. Yeah. And I thought to a way it was kind of a musical poetry. I hear the drizzle of the rain Like a memory it falls Soft and warm Tapping on my roof and walls And from the shelter of my mind Through the window of my eyes I gaze beyond the rain-drenched streets To England where my heart lies Minds distracted and diffused. My thoughts are many miles away. They lie with you when you're asleep and kiss you when you start your day. And a song I was writing is left undone. I don't know why I spend my time Writing songs I can't believe With words that tear and strain to rhyme I 
so you see I have come to doubt All that I once held is true I stand alone without beliefs The only truth I know As I watch the drops of rain Weave their weary paths and die I know that I am like the rain There before the grace of you So that was Kathy's song by Simon and Garfunkel, chosen by our guest on Love the Words today, Jamie Bloom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie's got a collection of poetry out called Change and Rage. Why, why the... Yeah, that title. I suppose it's been quite a lot of rage in me in my life. And um, possibly because of, I don't know, frustrations, maybe, uh, maybe the ADHD, which was... Uh, explain to me that ADHD is not psychological, it's chemical and it's a clinical problem and it was something you were probably born with and I wish that I'd known earlier because maybe my, at least my work life never mind my private life wouldn't have been all over the place, maybe wouldn't have jumped from one thing to another so much, maybe not been so reactive And did you seek a diagnosis of that recently? Yes, about seven years ago Yeah, what made you do that? Uh, I suppose my wife pointed out that my behaviour is erratic and uh, I didn't particularly want to go, but I did. And I only realised that they make their diagnosis or the psychiatrist is by watching you, watching your movements, watching your eye contact, seeing how much you're actually focusing, not what you're saying. And I thought that was revealing in itself. And when you got that diagnosis, how did you feel about it? Not great not something I particularly wanted but it explained a lot and it explained a lot of decisions I've made in my life and why they were so kind of radical um, also in my personal life mm. so I suppose now if I'm faced with that sort of decision or something that's important it throws up a red flag and I'll just stop before I move directly into it mm. and maybe think about it but then I didn't know I had to think about it or that I even had a problem and Jamie, the other side of your life, which would seem in complete contrast to 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 the rest of your very active, very almost you know adrenaline fueled life in managing music and venues, is Tai Chi. And Tai Chi always seems to me to be about stillness. And uh, so, I mean, maybe there is it's causal. Maybe you, I don't know. Tell us about how you got into Tai Chi and the place it has in your life. I kind of got into Tai Chi by accident. There was only one teacher in London at that time who used to interview you. Actually, I tell you, I went to Champneys for a weekend and there was somebody teaching Tai Chi there. Not that I even knew what Tai Chi was, I didn't. 
So I went to one of the classes and I happened to, I don't know why, but I recognised the moves he was doing and yet I hadn't seen them. So that quite fascinated me. So he recommended me to this chap in London. I went to see him. He did interview me, took me on and I stayed with it. I was with him for about four years. Overall, I had about five teachers and I've been teaching for about 30 years on and off. Um, and I was once interviewed by The Telegraph and they were quite fascinated that what's somebody doing in the club business teaching Tai Chi? They found that weird and opposing. But it, it was a funny interview and eventually they, they kind of did understand. So the main thing about Tai Chi, it's not what everybody thinks it is and it's not always slow. It can be used very fast. It's very much a martial art. And um, prior to that, I'd done, I did karate for three years and boxing most of my life so the nearest martial art to tai chi is funny enough western boxing it's not any of the chinese martial arts so um it also runs parallel with uh daoist philosophy they go hand in hand and lao tzu who wrote the Tao Te ching said the simple is not easy and the easy is not simple coming back to my comment on Kurt Cobain yeah, and playing the guitar. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's something that's always stayed with me. I still love it. I was attracted to it because it looked quite infinite and it looked like something I would never really get on top of. Mm. And I'm still learning now. So who do you teach and in what situations? I teach people in Northamptonshire to where I live. I've got a small studio there yeah. that I teach. Um, but I've taught all over the place. Yeah. London, uh, gyms. All sorts mm. of situations. And do you enjoy the teaching? Yes. I still enjoy it. Mm. What, Even, is it what is it about the teaching that you particularly enjoy? Well, it puts me into a different zone. I'm not the same person when I'm teaching Tai Chi. Mm. It slows you down. It centres me more, I suppose. And does the Tai Chi inform the poetry at all? Some of the poems, yes. But I'm not sure everyone's going to understand it who hasn't done a martial art or done Tai Some of the expressions you wouldn't really understand if you hadn't had some knowledge, not of Tai Chi, but of the Tao Te Ching. So it's really, Tai Chi is a way of introducing Taoist philosophy to people. It's a key. Could you, for people who don't know what Taoism is, could you, I mean, that's a rid ridiculous question, but on request, could you summarise it in yeah, a I few could sentences? Do. I could do. So if you translate Tao Te Ching into English, it'd be the way of wisdom or way of knowledge, Tao meaning way. It's no more than the way nature moves. So example, in a hurricane, most things are uprooted, uh, thrown about, houses, cars, people, all sorts of things, but not bamboo. Bamboo moves with the wind, the rain, and it does not get uprooted. So you learn to move, to, to yield, to overcome. Is that... Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a great image of the bamboo too. It's pure. Yeah. It's pure, following how nature moves. Not a religion. Yeah, and do people make that mistake? No, I think not. I think most people don't know anything about it. But I, I only teach Tai Chi allied to Taoism. So the other one of them both together, or I won't teach them. Fascinating. So you write. I mean, I suppose rather than the actual subject of Tai Chi, I just wonder whether the kind of the, the spirit of it kind of informed the act of writing poetry. Yes, I think it does. I think it creeps through 
most of the things, well, not everything, but most of the things that I've written. Yeah. It can, and some directly are a result of the whole Tai Chi experience. Great. Well, let's, let's hear another poem. <laughs> okay. This is not in the same vein. It's called Vampires. Suck on energy. Sorry, can I start again? Yeah, of course. Suck on energy. Suck on blood. Communicate with bats. Eat rats. Sleep all day. Roam at night. Hate the light. Live forever. The endless quest. Still need a nest. Time to rest. It's in us all if we awake it. We drain those around us at times, charming and then alarming. We are old and grey but covert as we change our looks. Underground in dusty books. We'll not be seen eating little. The living dead love the red. We know who we are, but no longer care. Bare our teeth, fill the earth, sniff our foe as we enslave those who reach out for us on the street, on a bus. Careful not to get involved. Remember, You've been told. <laughs> nice. Yeah, lovely stuff. So, um, funny enough, there's a I've noticed a, a, a record that's kind of zooming up at the moment called Vampire. All right, okay. <laughs> that's missed me. But yeah, there you go. Possibly. <laughs> um, so the, the 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 collection of poetry is out soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and tell us about where you're launching it or where we can get hold of it. Because the book the book is published by Pegasus. It's been quite a long journey. Um, uh, it will, it's available uh, pre-order on Amazon now and on the Pegasus website. Uh, hopefully it will end up in shops as well. Uh, the shops I put forward are Waterstones, Daunts, uh, oddly enough, one in Primrose Hill uh, and some in Northamptonshire. And I hope it will be promoted here in, in Leeds as well. Of course, we're doing that thing now at this. Well, you moment. are, we yeah, are, yes, yeah, which I appreciate. No, absolutely fine. Mm. It's fascinating to talk mm. to you. Um, and yeah, so are you having a launch for it? Not as yet yeah. that I know about, but um, Pegasus are meant to be informing me of what I have to do and where it's going, etc. etc. I've got my own website, um, which is um, uh, Jamie Bloom Poetry. Dot com, okay. um, which I I think I've sent you my my website details etc. So and it's on Facebook and LinkedIn and it's beginning to happen. But the book's not out to the twenty eighth of this month. Great. And just finally, before we hear uh, one more poem and then another track, um, uh, yes, the, I mean in terms of the book, how did why did you have the idea to do the publication? It's your first one, isn't it? It is. So. Where did that? Where did that come from? Um, I had them like in a drawer, <laughs> a lot of them for a long time, and I happened to show them to my wife. Had a look at them and read them. And she said, "God, this is brilliant," um, and that kind of woke me up a bit. And she said, "I think you should make the effort to get these published." I had spoken about it in the past, but actually hadn't moved on it. And I think, to a degree, she did inspire me to to do something about it, not just Mm. sit on it. I suppose everyone's got some trepidation about being judged, 
poetry quite opens your soul. You're quite transparent mm. with it. It's not like writing a fictional novel. Mm. And I suppose that was a consideration. But now I've started it, I'm quite enjoying the journey. Good. And mm. thanks to Joanne for... Uh for inspiring you. <laughs> She's out there having a cup of tea now, I think. Yeah. Um, so let's have your final poem. Yeah, it is very much the final poem. <laughs> it's called The Final Freehold. Do we really own it, or is it just leased? After we are done underneath the earth, do they feed on us forever, cash and tax to be found? We're only here a short time and pay and pay and pay. But is it really over? as bills are on the way. It's not any different. It's just another day. The end could be celebrated, not mourning and so sad. Maybe a better place, which actually is not so bad. Fulfill our dreams, hear the playing of the band, as we wind our soulful journey to the promised land. The grim reaper, he's no sleeper. He's knocking on the wall. Whether old, tall or small, he stops you in mid-flow and you really have to go. So let's be bright, uninvolved. Seeing gravestones, she died so young, he lived longer, he was stronger. It all appears foretold. Do not fret or bother, we have reached the final freehold. Thank you very much, Jamie. Jamie Bloom reading. The final freehold. Mm. No, it's not the final poem uh, <laughs> that you write. Oh, it's a good name for a cemetery, though. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. It's true, actually. Uh, and I hope you write your book about, um, you know, about your time at the Rainbow. That'd be fantastic. I'm, oh. I'm attempting. I'm trying. Well, let, let us know when you do, okay. and we'll do this again. Okay. Uh, it'd be really nice to to push that book too, and to have it in our local uh, writers' library. So, um, finally. I've said that a few times now, mm -hmm. but uh, finally, finally, it'd be nice to hear another track. I'd like to select Creep by Radiohead, because you want to know why I like that. Um, maybe it's the line in it, um, what am I doing here? I think a lot of us don't actually know why we're here or what the journey is, and that song, I think, amplifies that statement. Thank you very much, Jamie.
Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. (laughs) 